Thanks, Audrey. Let me pray again for us before we get going. Heavenly Father, you are our living hope. Uh, we, we come to you this morning, um, and, and number one, we want to recognize it's, it, that we had Veterans Day this week. We just want to recognize the incredible sacrifice that so many veterans have made, or just the, just the, um, the offer of sacrificing everything for this country. Uh, and, and we want to acknowledge especially the sacrifice of Jesus this morning. We pray that we would see it in a new perspective. I say this all the time. I pray that all of us would see the gospel in a new light, and it would transform our lives a little bit more today as we preach through this passage. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, so good to see everybody. Thank you for being here. I never introduce myself. I don't know why. I think I just forget. So just just so you're aware, my name is Tim Porter. I'm one of the leaders, one of the elders, pastors, what have you. And I love to rebel against authority. Okay, I don't know if you feel the same way, and I don't know why I, I do this. We'll, we'll get into this in a minute. But since I was a little punk, any authority that I had, be it at school or parents or Cops, maybe, possibly, at some point in my life. I love to rebel against authority. So I was like, oh, this will be easy. Uh, I, I'll just tell a story. So I go to my wife last night, and I said, Holly, what story can you think of of how I rebelled against authority? And she goes, what? Don't you have dozens? <laughs> this is the, the extent to how I grew up, and still uh, to this day. She said, uh, just tell them your life's work is rebelling against authority. You, if somebody tells you how to do something, you're cynical and you always try to do it a, a, you know, a different way. Why do a lot of us like to rebel against authority? It's not just me. It's a lot of us. Somebody just said the other day, this guy named Mark Sayers, he's kind of an uh, up-and-coming Christian pastor, influencer. He's got some podcasts and stuff in Australia is where he's from. Someone asked him a question, why does Australia have such compliance with the vaccine mandate? In the U.S., we, we got a lot of people who, um, who aren't complying with the vaccine mandate. It's, it's, people are skeptical. And he said, I actually heard this secondhand, so don't quote me, but he said something to the extent of, well, it's easy. In the U.S., rebelling against authority, rebelling against the experts is ingrained in our DNA. Like it is in our American psyche to be cynical about what the experts or what the authorities say. And isn't that, isn't that true? I mean, just think of how the country began. All right, we had a bunch of ragtag, bunch of immigrants. We, we, we come together. The English is trying to oppress us, tax us, and send the money back to the king and queen. So we, we decide, nah, I don't think so. Let's do, let's do something different. So we declare our independence. We pick up our muskets and we fight. And we won. I don't know if you know that, but we won. We beat the most powerful nation in the world. A bunch of, bunch of ragtag immigrants. We rebelled and we rejected against the authority of that day. And so it is ingrained into our DNA as Americans. So much so that we made sure in the Constitution to start it with, we the people, right? Just to make sure, in case anybody gets any, any ideas, make sure the authority is with us, the people, not with the people in D.C. or Philadelphia, wherever it was at the time. 
We also, we put the Second Amendment in there, right? The Second Amendment says, just in case any future authorities, this is how cynical we are, just in case any future authorities get the wrong idea and try to be a little aggressive, we want the opportunity to bear arms and, and defend ourselves. So is it any wonder why we might rebel against authority? I, I, don't, I don't think it is. So rebelling against authority is not, is not wrong. It actually was really helpful in creating this nation. It, it can be helpful in business. But what's helpful in creating a nation might not be helpful in matters of faith. All right? Rebelling against authority is great depending on the authority you're rebelling against. If we're rebelling against the authority of Jesus, it's going to be devastating and it's going to lead to dire consequences. And that's what the passage is about today, rebelling against the authority of Jesus. Let's, uh, let's look at this, okay? I know we read it. It's long. There's a lot going on here, but um, we got we to gotta piece through this. So there's two, two chunks of, of Scripture we're going to go through. The first is 1 through 8, and the second one is 9 through, I think we read through 19. The first chunk is just the setup. It's a, it's a conversation that Jesus has with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who are together called the Sanhedrin. That's their, that's their group. Okay, and let me... So that's the setup, and then there's a parable of the tenants after that. But let me set up the setup, if I can. If you've been paying attention the last few weeks, we heard about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He comes in on a donkey. The crowd goes wild. People are like, yeah! We love this guy. Gets probably ruffles some feathers of the uh, of the leaders, the Sanhedrin. Okay, and then he comes in and nonchalantly walks into the temple. What, Brand, what did Brandon talk about last week? That he did such a great job. He goes in and starts tossing tables over. Like, what are you doing? You're doing all this business in my temple. This is a house of worship. So Jesus just takes authority, takes the liberty to just start throwing tables over ruffles the feathers a little bit more of these uh, Sanhedrin. So now he's teaching in the temple. And the Sanhedrin says, hey, let's go get this guy. Let's go, let's go trap him. He doesn't have the authority to be here. He didn't go through the proper channels, right? He didn't put in his application and submit his references and get permission to teach in the temple. So let's go, let's go trap him and let's, go, um, let's see if we can make him look dumb. So they go, to, they go to Jesus while he's teaching, and they ask him this question. Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who... Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. So they're not really asking the question, by what authority, right? They know that he didn't go through the proper channels. They didn't get permission from the Jewish leaders. They're pretty much asking... Who do you think you are? By what right do you have to come and to teach in our temple? This is our place. We, we have the authority here. You have to come and ask us. So they're, they're, this is the question that they're asking Jesus. And he responds, uh, the way only Jesus could, with, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So Jesus is standing there in the temple. He's got these Sanhedrin guys around him, and then there's even a bigger crowd around, uh, around them. 
And Jesus knows that John the Baptist was a super influential guy over the last years. People love John the Baptist. They, they went out by the thousands and got baptized by John the Baptist. They regarded him as a prophet. He was telling people, repent and be baptized and receive forgiveness of your sins. It was awesome. John the Baptist was doing the work of God. He was a prophet, and they viewed him as such. So when, they, so when Jesus asks the Sanhedrin, who is John the Baptist? Did he come from God? Did he come from heaven? Or is he just a man getting people wet? You know, When they're thinking about this, they think, well, if he is from heaven... They're going to say, um, why didn't you not get baptized? Because everybody got baptized by John the Baptist except the Jewish leaders. They didn't want to legitimize John the Baptist. So everybody got baptized except for the leaders. So they can't say he came from heaven. They can't respond to Jesus and say this. Or else they'll say, well, you hypocrites, why didn't you get baptized? But then they think to themselves, right, they're conferring with each other and say, well, what if we say he's from man? What if we tell him this? he's not from God, he's from man? Well, we can't say that because they all love John the Baptist. And if we say he's from man, they're going to take us outside and they're going to stone us because they really love this guy. So they confer and they're, okay, so what do we think? Okay, we can't say he's from heaven, we can't say he's from man. So they're talking to each other before they answer Jesus. Okay, we got an answer? Okay, we got an answer. So they, okay, we good. Am I talking? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk. All right, Jesus, we have an answer for you. Okay, what's your answer? We don't know. How ridiculous must this have been? They took time. They conferred. These are supposed to be the, the leaders of, of the church at that time or the, the Jewish people. We don't know. And so what was Jesus' response? Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you can't answer that question, I'm not answering your question. So he doesn't directly answer their question. Their original question, if you can try to remember this, by what authority do you do these things? He doesn't directly answer it, but he will indirectly answer it with a parable, with a story that only Jesus can do. So we're going to go to that story in a second, but there's one thing I think we can draw out of this first chunk of scripture, this first interchange between, it's like Team Sanhedrin, there's 10 or 50 of them, whatever it is, versus Jesus. This interchange between Jesus and the Sanhedrins. When the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, answered Jesus, we don't know where John the Baptist came from. Was that a truthful answer? Did they not know where John the Baptist came from? Wasn't the Sanhedrin, the, the leaders of the Jewish people, didn't they have a duty and an obligation to lead their people? They didn't think John the Baptist was from heaven. They thought he was just a man. But they answered, I don't know, because they were scared of the crowd. They feared man more than they feared God. They were confused. They didn't get it. But you can just see these guys are cowards. They're total cowards. So they say, we, we don't know, even though they did actually know, or they thought they knew. Do we see some of that in the church today? Do we see leaders of the church stand up here and instead of preaching something that might be unpopular they look around at the crowd and they look around at culture and they say i don't think i want to teach that that's going to be unpopular culture that's not really appropriate for the culture of the day we're seeing that all the time 
where, where leaders of churches will take the liberty to, to maybe just tweak the Bible, right? To make it more culturally palatable. That's jacked up, okay? This is, this is what you need to know. Some, some teachers, some leaders of churches, they're taking a, a pet sin, right? Think of the big ones. They take a pet sin, and they'll either pander to the left, they'll water it down and say, oh, it's not that bad. I think if Jesus was here today, he probably wouldn't be that angry about that sin. So they'll water it down and act like, it, it, like it's not that big of a deal when, when Scripture clearly calls it sin. Or if the leaders want to pander to the right, what do they do? They use this pet sin and say, let's hammer people for this. This is, this is the unpardonable sin. You can't be a Christian and actually do this sin. You see how you... Somebody might take the liberty to kind of water things down or maybe, maybe hammer people for a particular sin. That is not what we're called to do as leaders of the church. This is our authority. We preach through the Bible, verse by verse and book by book, whether it's in season or out of season, whether it's popular or whether it's unpopular. And leaders need to have the courage and the backbone to preach it no matter what people think. Does that make sense? So you need to know that just because you need to keep us accountable at, at, the, at the front, but also you need to know this because the, the mission of Outward Church is to grow up leaders. We want you guys to get on fire. We want you guys to see the gospel in a new perspective and go, what? It's that good? It's that cool? Oh, I want to be a part of that. I want to, I want to join in. I want to lead a community group or I want to, uh, whatever Brandon was talking about, the, the kids area. I want, to, I want to join in with you. I was listening. I was listening. I want to join in and help with the kids area. Or what would be cool is if over time this church grew and we had more leaders than we knew what to do with and we find another place that needs another church. Not a mega church. That's not our, that's not our goal to grow mega churches. But maybe Canby needs a place. Maybe Almsville. Is Almsville this way? I think it is. Maybe Almsville needs a church. So we take 50 or 100 or whatever, and we send them off to go plant another church. So you guys could be the leaders of the church, and you need to know this is our moral compass, not culture. We will, we will use this as our rudder, okay, through culture. We will lead culture through Scripture and through the Bible. And that took way too long. I didn't mean to spend that much time on that, that section. Let's keep going. Okay, so he didn't answer them directly with that question. If you remember, by what authority do you do these things? Tell us by what authority you do these things. But he tells them a story. He tells them a, a parable. So let's take a look at the parable now. It starts in verse 9. I would have loved to have been there, wouldn't you? Like he's standing there making them look foolish and says, neither by what authority I do these things. Neither will I tell you by what authority to do these things. A man planted a vineyard. You know, like, how did that go down? Did he wait a second? Did he take some time? Or did he just start right in on the story? It doesn't really matter, but it just would have been awesome to watch. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. So, so it's just like any business owner, okay? Start a business, and then you lent it out to tenants. That means you hire a manager. You hire a CEO to run your business so that you can go off and do other things. Maybe start another business or, or do other entrepreneurial things. He lent it out to tenants, and then he sent his employees or his servants back to the business to share in the profits of that business, which is fully in the right of the business owner, is it not? Or the shareholder, 
is another name for a business owner. This is what the servant in, or the, the owner of the vineyard was doing in, in this parable, sending his servant back to share in some of the fruit of the harvest at harvest time. So he sends one servant back, and what happens to that servant? He beat him, and he sent him away empty-handed. Are you trying to follow me on this? I'm sorry. I'm not even paying attention to that. He beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's the first servant. Okay, they won't respect my servant, so I'll send a second servant. But they beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. All right, so they didn't listen to two. Maybe they'll listen to a third servant. What happens to the third servant? Oh, this one they wounded and they cast out. Unbelievable, these tenants, these wicked tenants. Why aren't they sharing the, the profits with the business owner? Why aren't they sharing the fruit with the, the vineyard owner? So he says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. So he thinks to himself, they didn't listen to my employees. Maybe they'll listen to the co-owner, the one that stands to inherit the vineyard. Maybe they will listen to him, right? They will respect him. But what happens? But the tenants saw him, and they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. I don't know why they thought that the inheritance would be theirs. Maybe they thought that the owner was dead and this was the last family member. So they thought that they could take it over uh, after they kill the heir. I, I don't think they're thinking clearly, right? These tenants are not thinking rationally. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. But when they heard this, they said, surely not. That's, that was like, no way. These people were like upset. They were enraged. Jesus, through this simple little parable, just offended them significantly. Side note on scripture. This is so deep and so rich, this story. We have a bass player named Josh Rice that sent me a three-page email to try to be helpful, and he was, and I appreciated it. But it had so much like depth of all the Old, Test Old Testament imagery that's going on here. There's multiple Old Testament passages that Jesus is bringing out with this simple parable, and, and multiple image, images that he's using and illustrations that he's using. When you read Scripture, you need to know that it is infinitely deep and it has layer after layer after layer. So when you read a story, it's cool to just think about what you see and to think through that. But I think it's also good to find a commentary, find a biblical scholar like Josh Rice, for example, to help you uncover what is the depth and the meaning behind the, uh, behind the scripture that you're reading. Just a side note, okay? So why are they so enraged? Here's, here's why. Jesus is standing in the temple. And what you might not know is Jesus is possibly standing in a spot between the, I don't know, the lobby and the sanctuary, or the holy place and the temple courts, whatever it is, okay? In between these two areas, there is a giant vine 
engraved in the temple. It's 70 cubits high. That's like 115 feet high. That's not the temple. That's the vine is that big that's engraved on the side of this wall. It's adorned with gold leaves and jewels as, as grapes that are hanging off of this engraving. Why do I tell you this? Because the vineyard has incredible meaning to these people. Jesus is referring to Isaiah 5 when he's talking about the vineyard. These people all know what he's talking about. We might not because we're not biblical scholars here. But he's referring to Isaiah 5 when he says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it only yielded wild grapes. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. The vineyard, the Israelites that he's talking to, the Jewish people, they understood that they were the vineyard, okay? This is huge. Like, they, they thought they were the vineyard, and Jesus is, like, changing it up on them. Like, oops, you thought you were the vineyard? Oh, you're actually just the tenants. You're just the laborers. You're just the hired hands, the tools, maybe, to work the vineyard. This was so offensive to them. And then he implies that they're not even good tenants. They're bad tenants. Because the servants that the vineyard owner sent is symbolized as the prophets that God sent to tell the, uh, tell the Jewish people that God wants credit for the work that he had done. He sent prophet after prophet to the Jewish people and they treated them shamefully, killed them, beat them up, and, and murdered them. There was three that... Uh, I think this was Josh or another commentary I read. Elijah, they ran off into the wilderness. Isaiah, uh, it was said to believe that they sawed him in two. Zechariah was stoned to death. John the Baptist was treated terribly and then ultimately beheaded. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's answering their question. By what authority do you do these things? Jesus is saying, God is the owner of the vineyard. He sent you prophet after prophet. I am the last one that he is sending you, and he prophesies about his death and says, I, you are going to reject me and kill me. God is going to take that vineyard from you and destroy you. That's what he's saying to these people through this story. And then we continue with verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What, what, do we, what, what does this mean? What does all this mean? Number one, for the Jewish people, it's a clear indictment for the leaders, especially the leaders, this Sanhedrin. They failed to be the good tenants in the good vineyard. They chose the fruit of the vineyard over the vineyard owner. 
Okay, God recognizes this. Jesus tells them this, insinuates, I am the heir. You reject me. You're going to reject me, but, but the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I will become the foundation of the church. It's all going to be about me. And he says, you'll either fall. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. They will ultimately be crushed for what they did. So what does this mean for us? That was the Jewish people. What can we, what can we learn from this? We, unfortunately, are like Team Sanhedrin. We choose the vineyard. We choose the fruits of the vineyard rather than the vineyard owner. Do you remember Romans 1? I'm sorry, there's a ton of scripture today. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's what we do. We worship the created thing rather than the creator oftentimes. This guy J.R. Edwards says, since the beginning of creation, okay, this didn't just start with... Um, 1776, declaring our independence. That didn't, that didn't help matters. It started back in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. And he says, since the beginning of creation, humanity has sought to be like God without obeying God. To become lords of Eden rather than stewards of it. What is the sum total of human history, if not the attempt to rid the universe of God so that humanity can rule supreme. The tenants of the vineyard are the ultimate expression of human rebellion. They kill the heir and try to seize the inheritance for themselves. We the people <laughs> think we own the place. We the people want to take authority for ourselves. We want to rebel against God. We believe that dang lie that that pesky snake told us back in the day in Genesis in the Garden of Eden that if we rebel against God, we will be like God. Remember, that? that's what it says in Genesis 3. We will be like him. We will take have some of that authority that, that he has. That's a lie. Don't believe that lie. We rebel against God as a result of that, and we're in danger of being crushed by the cornerstone that the builders rejected. But there's another option. I don't know if you caught it in verse 18, but you can be crushed by the rock, or you can be broken, or stone, I should say, or you can be broken by the stone. Look again to verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Martin Luther, the guy who started this Reformation, thinks there's two different judgments of God going on there. There's the brokenness after you fall, or there's the crushing 
When the, when the stone falls on you, what's the difference? One is passive, one you trip over, right? It's this immovable fact of Christ, his holy life, his horrific death, his, his, or his incredible teaching, then his horrific death and his resurrection, okay? In our blindness and our arrogance, we trip over this and we are broken. Martin Luther thinks that represents repentance and forgiveness. And then he says, he says this, it is a blessed shattering for whoever breaks to pieces upon the stone these are those who collide with the stone unto salvation. They gladly smash into it and let themselves be broken so that they are nothing while Christ is everything. Those wanting to be extraordinarily holy must be broken to pieces. That's the first way. But the second, the second more active judgment of God, maybe perhaps corresponding to his second coming, is when the rock falls on us and crushes us. This feels like a little bit more hostile, a little bit more um, uh, scary of a way to be broken by this rock. This is what Luther says on that. If you despise it and you do not let yourself be broken to pieces, the stone will fall upon you and break you to pieces and crush you. There, it is better for you to fall on top of the stone for then it to fall on top of you. So we can either voluntarily be broken by the stone or we can be smashed <laughs> with hostility for no one will be able to flee from God's wrath. Christians are the ones who humble themselves and are broken by the rock. Listen, this is... This is Psalm 51. I don't know if you, if you know Psalm 51, but a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. That's, that's what we're talking about. Are you broken by Jesus? That's what, that's what we want. That's what we're after. We don't want to be crushed by him. If we rebel against his authority, if we reject his authority, we're likely to be crushed by him. But if we submit to his authority... We could be broken by it. How do we fall? How do we, how do we fall on top of the rock? How do we do this? We rebel against authority. <laughs> Wait, I thought we weren't rebelling against authority. What? He's confusing me. No, no, no. I love to rebel against authority. I don't re rebel against cops anymore, Josh and whoever else. We rebel against the authority, rebel against our perceived authority. We think we have it. We believe the lie, remember, of that pesky snake in the garden? We've got to pick up our muskets and fight back against that. We've got to rebel against that. Well, how do we, how do, we do that? What do we do? We've got to think how we take authority for ourselves. Where do we do this? I remember this conversation I had with somebody. I probably have referenced this sometime this summer because it's like so horrific in my, my thinking, but I, some guy early on, this is like a dozen years ago, what happened to you? I don't see you around very much. And I'm like, well, I decided to, to change my ways. I decided to start making better decisions and I'm just gonna you know, hang out with a different crowd and I'm starting to serve and I'm doing all these things and my business is going great. It was all about me, all about how great I was. And my friend, I don't think he was a Christian, but he says, man, you really sound like an arrogant jerk. <laughs> 
And I totally did. He totally called me out. I love friends like this who just like will tell you how it is. You know, they won't, they won't sugarcoat it. Where do you take authority in your life? Where do you rebel against God's authority and take it for yourself? Let me put it another way. There's not enough symbolism and imagery going on here. What is your cornerstone? Okay, because that's also referenced. The cornerstone is the first rock that they put down when they, when they put a building together. Okay, I asked Matt, my brother, who's preaching in Salem today. He's an ex-contractor. I asked him, what are they doing for cornerstones now? Like, what, what is, I don't know, bat boards or something? It's a little funny when I start talking about construction. It's a little bit like Matt's talking about sports. <laughs> okay, I don't know what I'm talking about for construction, and he didn't know anything about sports. Oh, the Seahawks won by a three-pointer last weekend. That was awesome. Wait for it. What is your cornerstone? The cornerstone is what they use to measure off of. Okay, this way, we're going to go we're going to go this way, this far, we're going to go this way, this far. What are you measuring your life after? What is the most important thing to you? What are you looking at? To say, am I doing well? Am I measuring up? Am I keeping up with the Joneses? Like, like just think about, is it the financial situation? Is it, is it success? Do we have everything? Like, like so-and-so is doing pretty good. How do we compare to them? You might not say that audibly, but, but another way to think of this is, what are you talking about on a daily basis? What are you thinking about on a daily basis? This can indicate what is your cornerstone? What are you getting worked up about? either good or bad? Is it like a, a ridiculous detail of, uh, in your life? Like, are, are little things bothering you? Is your cornerstone the gospel? Is it Jesus? Is that what you're measuring your life after? Are you, are you thinking of the gospel regularly in the morning, maybe listening to some, some, some worship music during the day? Are you, are you reading? Are you praying? Like, this is what we need to do. This is how we put the cornerstone in place in our life. We get into community with people that will point us to the gospel. We've got to stop rebelling against the authority of God and trying to take authority for ourselves. Last thing that I'm going to mention. One way that we can do this, one way that we can get Jesus into our life and get his authorities. We can think through his authority. Think through his all authority. All the authority. He actually does answer the question, just not to them. He answered it to other people. All authority was given to him by his father. He has authority of everything and everyone. He has the authority over creation. He has the authority to uphold creation. He has the authority to control creation. Even the winds and the seas obey him. He has the authority over Satan. Did you know that? In Job, he has to give Job, or he has to give Satan permission to afflict Job. He has the authority over health. There's no disease that will wreck his mission. The, the coronavirus, COVID, that's not out of his control. He has authority over that. He has authority over the kings that are in place. The governors, the, the mayors, the state representatives, the congressmen and women, the president, 
the prime minister, the sheikh, whatever. He puts those he puts those people in place and he will turn their hearts whatever way he wants. He has authority over that. He has authority over conversion, whether you come to know faith or whether you come to know Jesus or whether or whether you don't. He has authority over that. He has authority over death and life. He has authority over sin. Piper said, this was awesome, something I read uh, this week. You can't dart down the dark alley of sin to escape Jesus' authority. He's there. He orchestrated the worst sin of all time. The, the murder of the Son of God. He has authority over everything. He has authority over your finances. He has authority over your job. He has authority over the, what's, what's keeping you up at night. He has authority over what's, what's making you sad right now. He has authority over your shame. He has authority over your sin. That should not be a threat to you. That should be a comfort. That should comfort you. That should drop you to your knees. And that you should submit to that authority. Shouldn't you? Shouldn't we? And then you think, he had all this authority. What did he do with it? What did he do with his authority? John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. He has all authority. He gave it up for us. Do you want to be broken by the rock? We got to see that he was broken for us. Does this make sense? This is huge. This is a huge deal. We've got to stop rebelling against the authority of Jesus. We've got to start rebelling of how we try to take authority in our lives. Let me pray. We'll have the, the ushers and the band come forward while I pray. Heavenly Father, there's too much in this passage. I can't, I can't do it justice. But I pray that you would do it justice. I pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that you, that you would come and that you would stir us to a new understanding, a new, a new clearer picture of your authority and how all-encompassing it is. There's nothing outside of your authority and your son's authority. I pray, especially in this nation, that we would not rebel against that, but, but we would submit to it, that we would serve the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that that authority, it would break us, that we would just, we would just crumble at the understanding of how of how great that is and how great you are. We would see that you were broken on our behalf and that through faith we can be healed. Through your wounds we can be healed. Thank you for this parable. We thank you for this, uh, for, for Jesus' words this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Listen, let's, uh, let's jump up and let's grab communion. I'll